This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. The English Heritage Podcast is published every Thursday, so make sure you subscribe to get a regular dose of history into your headphones. Now, this week we're heading back to the late Tudor period, during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. However, it's not Elizabeth, but rather her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, who is the subject of this week's discussion. Joining me to discuss Mary's turbulent life, controversial marriages and time as a prisoner at Carlisle Castle in Cumbria is senior properties historian Dr Stephen Brindle. Thank you very much. Nice to be back. Well, let's start off, Stephen, by looking at Mary's family tree. Who were her parents? Her father was King James V of Scotland and her mother was a great French noblewoman, Mary of Guise. And when did she inherit the Scottish throne? Because I gather she was a very young queen. Yes, that's right. Her father, James V, was killed in battle with the English at the Battle of Solway Moss in 1542, when Mary was six days old. So she came to the throne immediately with her mother, a number of aristocrats, as regents for her. What happened to her next? Uh, did she spend her youth in Scotland? Or? Now, Scotland at the time was in a very turbulent, unstable situation because the nation was becoming Protestant. They were going through a popular reformation. But the monarchy, James V, Queen Mary, were Catholics. Most of the nobility were still Catholic, but the populace were embracing Protestantism. And so Scotland was in a very fluid situation. Then it lost its king in battle with the English. And Scotland was also poised between traditional enmity with the English and their friendship with the French crown. Now, Henry VIII was sick of this situation of being trapped between France and Scotland. And he wanted to try and force the young Queen Mary, this sort of infant, to marry his son, Edward, to tie Scotland and England together so this wouldn't happen in the future. And in 1544, Henry sent an army to invade Scotland, called the Rough Wooing, to try and persuade, in inverted commas, the Scots to agree that their young princess Mary would marry Edward when they grew up, and Scotland and England would be united. Now, as you might imagine, despite the fact that a lot of the Scots were becoming Protestant, like England, the Scots didn't take very kindly to this, and King Henry's plan backfired very badly. The Scots said, no way are we going to be forced into almost literally a shotgun marriage with the English. And so the English sort of alliance collapsed, and King Henry II of France said, OK, if you send your young princess to France, we will bring her up at the French court, she will marry my son, the Dauphin Francis, and instead of Scotland being united by her marriage to England, it will be united to France. And King Henry II of France saw his opportunity to relaunch the traditional Franco-Scottish anti-English alliance. And so he proposed that the young Princess Mary should marry his son, the Dauphin Francis. He said, we'll bring her to France, she'll be brought up in safety at the French court, she will marry my son, and in due course they will rule both France and Scotland 
and England would be trapped between France and Scotland, which would now be permanently united under the same monarchs. So Henry VIII's plan, the rough wooing, really backfired very badly. And for that reason, when Mary was five in 1547, she was sent to France and she was brought up at the French court to marry the Dauphin Francis. I'd like to ask, if you don't mind, why was Scotland turning Protestant and yet the royalty there wasn't? Well, most European ruling families had traditionally been Catholic and they were anointed king by the church. And the whole idea of monarchy was very tied up with traditional Catholicism. England was rather an exception because of Henry VIII's circumstances. He wanted control of the church so he could give himself a divorce. But for James V of Scotland and Mary of Guise, they were traditional Catholics. And they were aghast to see popular support for the Catholic Church sliding away, slipping away under their eyes. And this is partly because the Scots were a well-educated people. Lots of them could read and they wanted a religion in which they could read scripture themselves and form their own views and come to religion in their, in their own way through scripture. So the Reformation in Scotland had a popular character much more than it did in England. Was this related to being able to read the Bible in what was then English as opposed to Latin? Yes. So demystifying the word of God, etc. Exactly, and taking it out of the hands of the Catholic priesthood and giving it to preachers who themselves came from the people and weren't part of this great religious hierarchy with its head far away in Rome. So if we go back to the uh, Mary situation and her marrying the Dauphin in France, that's in some ways a sort of coup, isn't it? to sort of go south, regroup, and then eventually try and come back north again and re-establish the status quo. Yeah, I think part of Henry's, Henry II's motivation might have been that he would have Princess Mary in France, he'd be sure that she'd be brought up a Catholic, and I think there was an assumption by the Catholic court party in Scotland and at the French court that Mary would help to reimpose Catholicism in Scotland when she eventually came to the throne there. Of course, things turned out rather differently in the, in the event. Of course, and we'll discuss that. So Mary marries. Well, how old is she at the time? She married uh, the Dauphin Francis of France in 1558. So she was 16 and he was 14 at the time. The following year, his father, King Henry II, was killed in a, a truly horrible jousting accident. And Francis came to the throne in 1559 he was 15 years old, Mary was two years older than him. And they were King and Queen of France for about 18 months. But Francis died in 1560. He was only 16. It's not quite clear of what. He was always rather a, a sickly child. It might have been meningitis. It's been suggested that he had an, a middle ear infection which turned into an abscess. At any rate, he died at the end of 1560. So Mary, from having achieved this glorious situation, she was the Queen of Scotland, although her mother was regent on her behalf there, and she was the Queen Consort of France. She was a widow, and Francis's brother, Charles, came to the throne of Charles IX, and she was needed in Scotland, uh, where her mother, Mary of Guise, was in increasing difficulties as the regent. I see. So it wasn't so much that she was becoming unwelcome in France and unpopular because she was now the sort of the widow of the king. 
Not at all. In other circumstances, she might have married again amongst the great French nobility and would have had a relatively speaking happy life in France. But no, she was the Queen of Scotland and she had to go there, which she did in 1561. She arrived at Leith to find Scotland in a state of some turmoil. And her mother, Mary of Guise's Catholic government, had lost much of its authority because the Protestant Reformation had spread so far, especially in the south and in the major towns on the eastern seaboard. So she came back to a country that she almost didn't recognise. Well, she hadn't been there since she was a five-year-old. Uh, she hardly knew her own country. That, that was part of the problem, I think. Mm. When had Scotland started turning Protestant? How many years had passed between that and Mary's arrival? Calvinist preachers from Geneva had been preaching in Scotland since the 1530s. But things had really started to move there after the death of Henry VIII of England in 1547, because he was succeeded by Edward VI, and the government was run by the Duke of Somerset, the Protector Somerset, who was an extreme Protestant. And after that point, Calvinist preachers were not merely tolerated in England, they represented the government, uh, they represented the official view in England, and the English government positively supported and encouraged the spread of Protestantism in Scotland. So from that point, from 1547, Scottish Protestantism was being actively supported from England. And it was another reason for tension between the Scottish government and England, because the Catholic monarchy in Scotland, under Mary's mother Mary of Guise, felt the Reformation in Scotland was being positively unencouraged, the church was being undermined by all of these English preachers. I see. Uh, and so John Knox and the people like him were encouraged and supported by the Protestant government of England in the reign of King Edward VI. So it's almost state-sponsored cultural change from the South. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this time the Scottish aristocracy felt that England was interfering in Scottish affairs yet again but in a different kind of way and from a different perspective. The royalty, the royal family in Scotland then, were in a minority at this point. How did they ever think that they would get things overturned? I think Mary initially recognised that she couldn't. The Catholic nobility hoped that Mary, with French help and French money, would try and reimpose Catholicism. And I think Mary herself realised that this was now impossible and she tried to rule through a combination of Catholic and Protestant lords on her council, and she declined to impose a sort of a rigorously Catholic policy, which I think would have been more or less impossible by that stage anyway. But at any rate, for the first few years of her reign, Mary seemed to consolidate her hold on power and gain some popularity, I think, for not trying to reimpose Catholicism by force, and by trying to reach some kind of consensus over religious policy with the Scottish population. So for the first few years there, 1561, 2, 3, 4, really until her marriage to Henry Lord Darnley in 1565, her reign didn't turn out so badly. Mm. It was on her second marriage when things really started to slide. Yes, yeah, so it sounds like she tried to balance things up a little bit between the competing ideologies and then marries, and then causes some real trouble. Uh, tell us a bit more about her cousin, Henry Stuart Lord Darnley, her second marriage. In July 1565, 
Mary married an Anglo-Scottish nobleman, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. He was her second husband. And the startling thing about this is not only were they cousins, they both had a claim to the English throne. In fact, the two people with the best claim to the English throne genealogically after Queen Elizabeth were Mary herself and her new mother-in-law, who was a lady called Margaret Douglas. And this is because they were both descended from Henry VIII's younger sister, Margaret Tudor. To understand this, you have to do a bit of Tudor genealogy. King Henry VIII had a younger sister called Margaret, and Henry VII married her off to James IV of Scotland, thinking that it would make peace between the two countries. But of course, war broke out again, and in 1513, James IV, Margaret's husband, was killed fighting the English at the Battle of Flodden. So there's this English princess who's become the Queen of Scotland and is widowed. And she then married a Scottish nobleman called Archibald Douglas, the Earl of Angus, and they had one legitimate daughter who was called Margaret Douglas. So Margaret was herself Henry VIII's niece and Elizabeth I's first cousin. Margaret Douglas, Elizabeth I's first cousin, marries another Scottish nobleman called Matthew Stuart, the Earl of Lennox. Matthew Stuart, well, the clue there is in the name, was the representative of the junior branch of the Royal House of Scotland. So they're sort of a doubly grand couple. Matthew Stuart has a claim to the throne of Scotland if the main line of Stuarts dies out, while Margaret has a very good claim to the throne of England. And they had a son, Henry, born 1546, and he's the Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley, who Mary, Queen of Scots, married. So for Elizabeth I, this was a kind of potentially toxic situation. The two people with the best claim to the English throne after herself were the Queen of Scotland and the man she just married, or strictly speaking, his mother. But it really amounted to the same thing. So this is kind of dangerous for Elizabeth, who at that stage wasn't married, but most people in England expected that she would be, and expected that she would have a child. Of course, no one knew then that Elizabeth would never marry and never have a child and would live and die a virgin queen. Mm. But if she died, as people do, then the next in line to the throne would be Mary, Queen of Scots, her claim now fortified by that of her new husband. So for England, a lot now depended on how Mary and Darnley's rule of Scotland turned out. But unfortunately, it turned out very badly indeed. Before we just get into that, can I ask, was Mary, Queen of Scots, planning to take the English throne through this marriage to Henry Lord Darnley with this sort of double threat? Now, it's funny you should say that, they say. Remember that Elizabeth, in the eyes of the whole Catholic world, was a bastard because Henry VIII had divorced his legitimate Catholic wife, Catherine of Aragon, and married the woman generally regarded in Catholic Europe as a witch, as his whore, Anne Boleyn, and Elizabeth was daughter of that marriage. And when Queen Mary Tudor had died in 1558, and Elizabeth came to the throne, Henry II of France had taken the opportunity to declare that his son Francis and his wife Mary were now the rightful king and queen of England. 
So from the moment that Elizabeth had come to the throne, the official French position had been that Mary actually was already the rightful Queen of England. So yes, Mary probably already regarded herself at some level as the rightful Queen of England because she wouldn't have accepted that Henry VIII's marriage to Anne Boleyn had been legitimate any more than any other Catholic would. And it may well be that Mary thought that by marrying Darnley she would strengthen her effective claim to the English throne, but it's almost certain that Mary would have believed this from the moment that Mary Tudor had died, Mary had probably regarded herself as, at some level, as the Queen of England. Mm. The stage is set for a showdown then between these two strong women, one who's been conditioned and told that you have a claim to the English throne, who's now sort of moved the chess pieces around and is able to potentially take the throne later on. And, you know, she's, she's married well, but she's also facing a battle in the sense that the country has turned Protestant and she is not. So it's all rather dramatic at this stage, isn't it? Potentially very dramatic. And it turned out dramatically, but in quite a different way to what Mary probably expected. Stephen, tell us how the marriage to Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley, by Mary, Queen of Scots, was so problematic. Did he have a personality problem as well? Yes, Lord Darnley was vain and mentally unstable and arrogant, and he made a lot of enemies. He wanted Mary to give him the crown matrimonial, which was effectively to concede half share in royal authority to him, which she wouldn't do because she didn't quite trust him, and he took this very badly. And Darnley conceived a violent hatred for Mary's secretary, David Rizzio, who's probably a most trusted advisor. And in March 1566, Rizzio was murdered by a group of Scottish noblemen friends of Darnley, with Darnley himself present in the room. So Mary's there, she's pregnant, and her secretary was murdered before her eyes by a group of Scottish noblemen with her husband, who was part of this conspiracy. And her son James, who became James VI of Scotland eventually, and later James I of England, was born about three months after that. That is truly shocking. It sounds like something out of um, a gangster film or something. And this is happening in the highest levels of the royal court in Scotland. Yes, actually in Mary's own chamber. But worse was to follow when Darnley himself was murdered the following year. And the circumstance of this remained fairly mysterious. And the question of whether Mary herself was complicit in his murder has never quite been established. But in February 1567, Darnley was convalescing away from court in a house just outside Edinburgh called Kirker Field. He was said to have had smallpox, although it's also been said that it was syphilis. And on one night in February 1667, the house was destroyed by two great explosions. Darnley's body was found in the garden. He hadn't been killed by the explosion. He'd been killed either by smothering or strangulation. So Darnley himself was murdered, and rumour pointed a finger at Mary's new favourite, James Hepburn, Earl of Bothwell. And the rumours got to London, and there's a famous letter from Queen Elizabeth I to Mary saying, Dear cousin, I must tell you what rumours are circulating about you. I hope you can assure me that these are not true. Although Elizabeth and her council probably did believe that Mary had connived in the murder of her husband, who'd become inconvenient and was intriguing against her. 
So murder of Rizzio might have been bad enough, but then Mary's own husband was murdered, and half the world believed that Mary herself had been complicit in his death, although this isn't quite true. And matters then got yet worse, as she was abducted from court, possibly with her own connivance, by Lord Bothwell, the man who was universally believed to have murdered Lord Darnley, who carried her off to Dunbar Castle, where he may or may not have raped her, and then took her back to Edinburgh, where, believe it or not, they were married with Mary's consent in May 1567. So, uh, Mm. the succession of scandalous events just got yet more scandalous. I think you might imagine what Scottish public opinion might have made of all this. It sounds as though Mary was terrible at handling relationships with men, whether they were confidants or, or, or husband material. I think that's very fair, yes. Elizabeth kept them all at arm's length. Mary couldn't quite, and uh, the key relationships in her life went catastrophically wrong. Yes, that is true. I'm seeing a pattern here. This James Hepburn character, the Earl of Bothwell, who effectively kidnaps her, and then she then marries him. But he's quite similar, I would say, to Mary's second husband, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. They sound like they're quite red-blooded, vigorous, virile men. Well, Lord Donnelly was a 19-year-old boy, the tall, athletic, bratty and arrogant. Bothwell was a good deal older, already married, a sort of red-blooded fighting Scottish nobleman, rather more sort of red-blooded and aggressive kind of men. But uh, yes, they were both dominant and assertive and um, I think had difficulty with the idea of female authority. And I think Mary was drawn to all the wrong qualities in them, yes. What happens after the marriage then and Mary's abduction? Mm. As you might imagine, Mary's authority and reputation had completely collapsed by the time she married Bothwell. And that seemed to confirm all of the rumours and everyone's worst suspicions. And a group of Scots lords came together, the Confederate lords, to overthrow her government. Mary and Bothwell assembled an army which confronted the rebels at Carberry Hill, but their forces melted away in the face of armed opposition, not very surprisingly. And in July 1567, Mary was forced to abdicate the Scottish throne, although she kept the title of Queen of Scots, and she was imprisoned in Loch Leven Castle. Mary, at this point, as she's imprisoned at Loch Leven, has married three times, and all have been failures, or or, the first one being very unfortunate. And how old is she at this point? By this stage, she was 25 years old. She'd been born in 1542. So she'd been through quite a lot and also seemed to have run into lots of obstacles as well. I think her whole life sounded like a real obstacle from the fact that she was almost on the back foot, having grown up in France, coming to Scotland, trying to carve out some sort of reputation, which was then destroyed. It sounds like she was never destined to rule. Well, if you think about it, Elizabeth I of England had inherited the throne in similarly difficult circumstances. And she'd contrived to keep suitors at a distance, to keep male courtiers at a distance. And that strategy worked for her, although, of course, it didn't give England an heir to the throne. Now, Mary had an heir, an infant son, James, but her life had been this succession of of catastrophes, as you say. Mm. Uh, And it is uh, in large part because 
of her disastrous mismanagement of her personal relationships, yes. Tell us about Mary's incarceration at Loch Leven and then her subsequent escape, which surprises me. Loch Leven is a small castle on an island in the middle of a loch of Loch Leven, chosen to be extra secure. And she had a sort of a small court of attendance there. And she escaped with the connivance of her jailer. And because she still had supporters, I know hard that it may seem to believe, who believed that she'd been maligned and wronged and that all these other events were the work of people conspiring against her. And she escaped in May of 1568 after being imprisoned there for about nine months, and her supporters were defeated at the Battle of Langside. So she escapes from Loch Leven Castle, thanks to her jailer. What happens next? Does she go south to England? After the defeat of the Battle of Langside on the 13th of May 1568, Mary fled to England. She arrived on English soil on the 16th and at Carlisle on the 18th, where the Lord Scroop of Bolton, who was the Lord Warden of the West March, very surprised to receive her, sent to London to ask what to do with the Queen of Scots. And she was at Carlisle as his guest until mid-July. And she really seems to have expected that her cousin, Elizabeth, would send her back at the head of an English army and put her back on the Scottish throne. I know this might seem naive, but it's certainly what Mary seems to have expected to happen. But in reality, this was never going to happen. No, I think by this point, she had very much lost the game, really. The game was up. Well, English public opinion generally believed Mary to be guilty, or at any rate complicit, in Lord Darnley's murder. And Queen Elizabeth ordered a kind of mock trial, a kind of trial to be held in York, an inquiry into Darnley's death and Mary's complicity in it. And although no verdict was produced at the end of this, it was declared to be not proven. And when Elizabeth did propose to the Scottish Parliament Mary should return, they overwhelmingly rejected the idea. So Elizabeth knew that Mary couldn't be restored to the throne of Scotland. And you might wonder why she didn't send Mary back to France. And I think it's because she thought that Mary would be even more dangerous there in the hand of a potentially hostile foreign court to have the person with the best lineal claim to the English throne there at the court of England's ancient enemy, France. Mm. And Mary stayed as Elizabeth's guest in England. I presume from a sort of public relations standpoint, it also served Elizabeth in terms of her strategy of keeping Mary at arm's length because she was so toxic? Yes, it was very difficult for Elizabeth to know what to do with Mary. She couldn't risk sending her back to France, she couldn't put her back on the Scottish throne, and she certainly didn't want her at the English court. She didn't want her to be kept anywhere too near the sea in case there were foreign rescue attempts, and she couldn't be too near the Scottish borders in case her supporters in Scotland tried to spring her and so Elizabeth decided she was going to have to be kept in England at arm's length from a good distance from the court, but also a good distance from the sea. And this, I think, is why Elizabeth chose poor old George Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury, to be her official keeper. He was to have the very dubious honour of having the Queen of Scots as his guest for about the next 14 years. And the guest at what location? Well, initially Mary was being kept by Lord Scroop of Bolton, who was the Lord Warden of the West March. And then she was moved in the summer of 1568 
from Carlisle to Bolton Castle in Wensleydale, which was Lord Scroop's own home. And then after this trial at York was concluded, Mary was given into the keeping of the Earl of Shrewsbury, and she was held in about half a dozen places, all of which belonged to him. It was Chatsworth, the famous country house in Derbyshire, which actually belonged to Lord Shrewsbury's wife, Bess of Hardwick, as she's known. There was Chartley, which is a castle in Staffordshire, Tutbury's, another castle in Staffordshire, Wingfield Manor, which is another of English Heritage's monuments in Derbyshire, Sheffield Manor, and a manor house at Buxton, where Mary was allowed to go to take the waters from seven summers. So she circulates from house to house, as great aristocrats did then, all of which belonged to Lord Shrewsbury, with a reduced but still substantial household of her own servants. And for poor Lord Shrewsbury, he had to bear all the costs and the stress of having Mary, and it consumed a large part of his income and time and attention, because Mary had to be kept secure. Was she at risk of being abducted by Catholic sympathisers at that point, or being murdered by Protestant sort of hardliners? Mary was presumably at risk of both of those things, but I think Elizabeth was herself at rather more risk of being assassinated by Catholic conspirators who wanted to put Mary on the English throne. So this was a very dangerous situation for Elizabeth. And there is no doubt that there were Catholic plots in England to put Mary on the English throne. There were two really major ones, the Ridolfi plot in 1571, which the Duke of Norfolk, the premier nobleman in England, plotted to marry Mary, have Elizabeth assassinated, and ascend the throne with Mary as his wife. Hmm. And Norfolk was imprisoned in the tower, was implicated in the Ridolfi plot, and he was executed in 1571. I can understand now why they wanted to move Mary around, because she was um, a dangerous asset. She was um, a dangerous asset or liability. Mm. Uh, poor Lord Shrewsbury, he effectively had to be her jailer, although it had to, had to be presented as her being his guest. She was always asking when she could come to London to see her dear cousin the Queen, which of course Elizabeth wouldn't allow at all. One of the curious facts about all this is that Elizabeth and Mary never in fact met. Yes, which the uh, film of recent times goes against. Yeah, uh, they can never quite resist, can they? I, I think more than one film about Mary has had a clandestine meeting with Elizabeth, and it never happened. No, it was all conducted by a letter, wasn't it? How, how was their relationship? Because they are cousins, aren't they? They were cousins, and um, how they regard each other, rather difficult to know. Elizabeth would certainly have thought of Mary as a political threat and would have thought of her as an appallingly misguided and foolish woman, I'm sure, and would have thought of Mary's whole life as a model and example of how not to conduct herself. And it's at least possible that Elizabeth's own reluctance to commit herself to marriage was partly because of Mary's disastrous experience of marriage. Hmm. Let's um, go back a little bit to the fact that she was moving around locations. Where does Carlisle Castle fit within the chronology of Mary's stays? Mary arrived in England on the 16th of May, and two days later she arrived at Carlisle Castle. Carlisle had been a royal palace rather briefly in the 13th century, when Edward I had his court there, when he'd been trying to conquer Scotland. So there was a suite of royal apartments there, 
but it was a long, long time since they'd actually housed royalty. And the castle was, well, not neglected, but very old-fashioned and uncomfortable. There was a square tower which had been built to house fine chambers for Edward I's queen, Margaret of France, in the early 14th century. And that's where Mary stayed, in this tower, with two chambers which had been, well, they were reckoned as fine chambers for a queen in the early 14th century. And so it became known as the Queen of Scots Tower. Now that sadly was demolished early in the 19th century. So of the place where Mary actually stayed in the castle, you can only see the the footings of the walls now. But Mm. Mary stayed there for about two months, from the 18th of May until mid-July 1568. At Carlisle specifically, how was Mary's life? Was she well looked after? You talked about the tower not being perhaps adequate for this period. It was fine for the 14th Mm. century. So did she live well? She would have been received as a queen, as uh, as a guest of royal status, by Lord Scroop, who would have sent urgently to London for instructions, I've no doubt. And quite a number of her supporters, about 40 or 50 of them, joined her in Carlisle. So she had a substantial household. So the castle would have been fairly full. And Lord Scroop had to incur a lot of expense feeding her properly. She would have held a sort of makeshift court. There's a record of her supporters and local people playing football on the ground outside the castle, and the Queen asked them to play a match so she could watch from the battlements. Out of interest, Stephen, what kind of um, football would they have been using in those days? I think it would have been a pig's bladder, I believe, though uh, I'm not certain in that particular case. And she wasn't there for very long. What happens next? Mary was taken first to Bolton Castle in Wensleydale in Yorkshire, which was the seat of the Lord Warden of the West March. And subsequently, she was transferred to the care of George Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury, one of the richest noblemen in the north of England. Elizabeth would have chosen him because he was rich, because he could assume the cost, and because his estates were all in the Midlands, so a long way from court, but also a long way from the sea. And Mary was held in about six different places, all residences belonging to Lord Shrewsbury, from 1568 until 1586, the year before her execution. That's a really long time. 18 years as Lord Shrewsbury's involuntary guest, yes. Yes. But how do we get to the point where she meets her end? There was an initial plot by the Duke of Norfolk to marry her, and then there was something called the Ridolfi plot to assassinate Mary and marry her to Norfolk and put her on the throne, after which the Duke of Norfolk was executed in 1571. And then there was something called the Babington plot in 1586, and by this time Mary was being sponsored by the King of Spain, by Philip II. And the Babington plot was discovered. Sir Francis Walsingham, who was Elizabeth's spy master general, managed to intercept the secret correspondence that was getting to Mary, then being held at a place called Chartley Castle in Staffordshire. Walsingham managed to get a spy into her household and intercept and read her correspondence and show it to Elizabeth which proved beyond doubt that Mary was herself involved in these plots and knew of them. So the Babington plot is the one which was discovered by Walsingham. He showed the proof to Elizabeth and Elizabeth could 
hold out no longer against her Privy Council, who urged her to bring Mary to execution. At this point, Mary was taken away from Lord Shrewsbury's care, and she was transferred in 1586 to a royal castle called Fotheringay in Northamptonshire in September 1586. Once the Babington plot had been discovered in the summer of 1586, Elizabeth and her Privy Council decided that Mary must become a state prisoner, that the pretense of her being Lord Shrewsbury's guest must be ended, and in September 1586 she was moved, this time overtly as a prisoner, to Fotheringay, which was a royal castle in Northamptonshire. There she was put on trial in October 1586, convicted of the murder of Lord Darnley and of conspiring to have Elizabeth assassinated and seize the English throne and sentenced to death. But Elizabeth hesitated and declined to sign the death warrant. That's interesting. Why? Elizabeth was um, horrified by the idea of executing a fellow monarch, someone who was an anointed queen, even if she was demonstrably guilty of conspiring to have Elizabeth murdered. And Elizabeth knew how appalling this would look to Catholic opinion on the continent, and she was treading a very fine line. England was already supporting the Dutch Protestant rebels in the Netherlands against Philip II of Spain, and was on the verge of being at war with Spain, and Elizabeth wasn't at all sure how open war with Spain would go. So Elizabeth was very reluctant to do this. Stephen, how did Queen Elizabeth I not involve herself in Mary's execution? Well, of course, this was very difficult, because Mary couldn't be executed without Elizabeth's signature on a death warrant. Elizabeth was eventually prevailed on to sign it, and she entrusted the death warrant to one of the more minor members of the Privy Council, a man called William Davison. Davison told William Cecil, the Lord Treasurer, that she'd signed the warrant, and Cecil summoned the Privy Council without letting the Queen know. The Privy Council then, on their authority, sent the death warrant to Fotheringay. So Elizabeth could claim that the warrant had been released and sent without her knowledge and without her permission. And it is possible that this was an elaborate charade. At any rate, once the news of Mary's execution was public, Elizabeth went through a great sort of show of rage at the execution having gone ahead. She claimed without her permission, and poor Davison, who was made to be the fall guy in this situation, was sent to the tower. But um, Elizabeth was very good at uh, manipulating her image and manipulating those around her. Mm. At any rate, Mary was executed at Fotheringay on the 8th of February 1587. What were Mary's final words? She said in English, I forgive you with all my heart. For now, I hope I shall make an end of all my troubles, she said to her executioner. And her last words were, in mortuum domine, commendo spiritum mem. Into your hands, Lord, I commend my spirit. Mm. She was decapitated? She was um, executed with an axe, yes. Took three strokes of the axe, we are told, and the executioner picked up her head, and her head fell on the floor because the hair he thought he was grasping turned out to be an auburn wig, underneath which her hair was quite grey and cropped short. Oh, wow. A further indignity. 
Uh, well, you might say she tricked her captors one last time, you might say. But she wasn't that clever, really, I think. When we look at the whole story of Mary, Queen of Scots, she sounds to me like she was very much on the back foot from the start, having been kind of like this exiled child. But she thought that she was treading this path to a glorious future. She'd been conditioned that way through her childhood. She'd had all these marriages. But things, as she came back to Scotland, just gradually unravelled and she was not playing on a on a level playing field and she also i think didn't appreciate the might of queen elizabeth the first and how cunning she was and how superior her intelligence was in this sort of battle of wills it's really a tragic story isn't it and in any more conventional circumstances mary who was certainly an intelligent charming talented woman could have had by the standards of the age, a happy and fulfilled life. But in the circumstance of the mid-15th century, trying to rule a country which was slipping out of royal control, to be a Catholic queen in a Protestant country, was a very, very difficult brief to be given. It would have taxed the keenest political intelligence. It's true that Elizabeth I of England was queen in similarly difficult circumstances and made a success of it. But of course, Elizabeth made a success of her rule by virtue of never marrying, not having an heir, and ultimately having to leave her throne to Mary's child, who thus became the king of England as well as Scotland. So you could say that Mary had the last laugh, or at any rate, Mary's son and the Stuart dynasty thus ascended the throne of England. You could say that Mary won in the end, from that point of view, in a rather ironic way. Yeah, that is an interesting way of looking at it. So what is your view on the role of Mary in the story of Tudor England? She's, she's quite a big character, really, isn't she? It's because of Mary that the House of Stuart ascended the throne of England. And it's because of her and her son that Scotland and England were united by the Union of the Crowns in 1603 and went on to be united politically by the Act of Union of 1707. So Mary's ultimate legacy is the union of England and Scotland which made the United Kingdom through her son and through his succession to the English throne. So, yes, her legacy is, is huge and is with us still. It didn't turn out in the way she planned, but her dream that she would be queen in England and as well as Scotland came true for her son. And the union of England and Scotland became full political union, which has persisted to the present day. So I suppose in looking at the bigger picture, that's her legacy, which is a pretty big one, if you think about it. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To find out more details about Mary, Queen of Scots and her connection to Carlisle Castle, head to the English Heritage website. Join us again next week when we'll be looking at the plans behind a major project to transform the gardens at Belsay Hall in Northumberland. It's wonderful to have the opportunity to revive this wonderful landscape and garden. Thanks for listening. See you next time.